The airplane, a remarkable piece of human engineering. It has the capability to take a person from one part of the world to the other within the span of hours. It has brought the world together. And while an airplane is a fascinating flying machine, it is also a terrifying metal tube of death. Despite its massive size and advanced technology, an airplane is a sensitive machine that can malfunction at any given moment. Picture yourself as a captain of a United A380 commercial jetliner. You're flying 40,000 feet over the Atlantic Ocean. Everything seems fine. But then, your first officer takes control of the yoke and causes the plane to nosedive. Now, you must wrestle your first officer for control of the plane, followed by getting it out of the fatal dive. And to make matters worse, not long after the dive, alarms go off indicating that all four of the plane's engines have flamed out. While you struggle to regain control of the plane, unbeknownst to you and everyone else on board, there is something much more sinister lurking on this flight. Something that will test your skills as a pilot beyond your limits. On a cold, starry night, this is what Captain Juan Buendia an experienced pilot with over 20,000 flight hours must deal with. I'm Agent Kai, and I've decided to make my reports for Laos in the form of a podcast. My hope is that you, dear listener, will discover the truth of this world and open your eyes to it. The United Polaris Lounge at Newark International Airport was empty save a few travelers sitting at the bar. I was at a table enjoying a glass of Tadenze and watching the news on one of the lounge's flat screens. CBS News was giving a segment on plane crashes that have been happening around the world. According to the reporter, the NTSB's investigations into these crashes have turned up inconclusive. The black box to recover from these aircrafts gave no information as to what could have caused the crashes. Multiple reports on these planes concluded that whatever caused the planes to crash, malfunction did not seem to be the cause. Perhaps pilot error, but there was no evidence of that either. This wasn't the best thing to watch before boarding a plane, but it was inevitable since the media was having a field day with this occurrence for weeks now, and there wasn't a well-informed person around who didn't know about this problem. If I could, I would wait until this aviation situation was worked out before stepping onto a plane. However, Cameron had given me a new assignment that would start the instant I arrived in Oslo, Norway. When it came to a Lyle's assignment, agents were expected to fulfill their assignment in a timely fashion to prevent anything from getting out of hand. I just hoped that I would be able to get some rest during the overnight flight. And judging from the few passengers present in the first class lounge, once again, courtesy of Patrice Landless, that might have been a possibility. Of course, as things go, that was not going to be an option. As I took a sip of my champagne, a woman dressed in a United uniform and talking on the phone walked past me. She had something tucked under her arm that fell onto the ground. I picked it up. It was a worn-out paperback copy of Hamlet. I grabbed my glass and made my way over to the woman, who had taken a seat by one of the chairs facing the A380 at the gate. Excuse me, miss, I said. You dropped this back there. Ah, you are keen, my lord, you are keen. It would cost you a groaning to take off mine edge, I said. Books have no business being on floors. 
The woman smiled. You know your Shakespeare. I read a few of his plays. Oh, have you now? What's your favorite? Othello, I said. I'm guessing yours is Hamlet. You guess right, good sir, she said. I love my hammy. The woman invited me to sit with her. I accepted. She then introduced herself as Victoria Lakatos, the head flight attendant for United Flight 204. When she asked me for my name, I told her I was Finn Goff, a travel writer for a small webzine. Victoria stared at me with a raised eyebrow. You don't look like a Finn Goff. I smiled and asked her who I looked like then. I don't know. I'd say your real name would be a mystery, maybe even to you. She paused and thought for a moment. I'll call you Finn for now, at least until I get your real name. Fair enough. Victoria and I spoke for some time. We discussed Hamlet and Othello, debating which play was better. In the end, we both agreed to disagree. The topic then moved on to the strange plane crashes taking place all around the world. Victoria confessed that she was nervous, but that these strange crashes weren't going to keep her from traveling the skies. She loved it too much. If God forbid something did happen, she said, then at least she'd die doing what she loved. I found this to be an admirable trait. Finally, I learned she was a New Jerseyan with roots in Hungary. When it was my turn to speak a bit about myself, she got a text message from her friend, Edward, a fellow flight attendant, asking where she was. Shit, they're going to kill me, she said. Looks like I have to run into the plane and start getting things ready. She stood up. I'll see you on board? Yes, you will. It was nice meeting you, she paused. You're not a Finn. I'll see you on the plane. I ordered another glass of Tadenze when Victoria left. While I enjoyed my drink, I watched as the A380 was fueled and loaded with luggage. It always amazed me how large these planes were and how they could actually fly. The wingspan of this plane was massive with its four giant Rolls-Royce engines. Good evening, first class passengers. United Polaris Flight 204 to Oslo would like to invite all first class holders to begin boarding now. In the hours that followed, I was going to get well acquainted with this plane. We had been in the air for over three hours with four more to go. I had tried to get some rest during this time, but sleep did not come to me. Instead, I played a game of closing my eyes and letting the hum of the plane's engines knock me out. Doing this only gave me a solid 30 minutes of rest. In the end, I relented and just spent my time peering out the window at the starry night sky. A boy who looked like he was no older than 12 made his way across the first class cabin. Victoria intercepted the child and exchanged a few words with him. The boy then smiled and made his way back to Economy Plus. Sweet kid, Victoria said, taking the seat across from me. He wanted to meet the pilots. I wasn't aware that that was still allowed. Every now and then, if the pilots are okay with it, they allow it. Victoria twirled her blonde locks around her finger. You never tell me why you're going to Oslo. Business. I have to look into something there. That's a great way of telling me nothing, Victoria laughed. <laughs> You've ever been to Oslo? I shook my head. This would be my first time going. 
Well, if you get the chance, check out Mayamo. It's a restaurant with incredible food. Victoria paused and thought for a moment. I'd show you how to get there, but I'm scheduled on a London flight a couple hours after we land. I thanked her for the recommendation. Victoria was about to say something else when a woman's scream broke the silence. The scream was coming from Economy Plus. Without hesitation, Victoria, letting out a sigh, made her way over to the commotion. I followed her. Two passengers, a man and a woman, were in the midst of a heated argument. The woman was cursing and slapping the man. In response, the man barked obscenities and threatened to punch the woman if she didn't shut up. Victoria rushed up to the arguing passengers and got in between them. She tried to calm them down by speaking to them in a stern, soothing voice. However, both the man and woman told her to get lost. It was then that Victoria raised her voice in a loud and authoritative tone, telling the man and woman that if they didn't put an end to their foolish squabble, she would report their behavior to the captain, who would then inform the Oslo authorities and have them arrested once they landed. She encouraged the passengers to try her and see what would happen. The man and woman both looked like they were going to say something, but decided against it when they saw the intensity behind Victoria's green eyes. The instant they sat down, the other passengers, myself included, applauded. There's always unruly passengers nowadays, Victoria said, once we returned to our seats. I miss the days when people actually listened to rules. There were days when people listened to rules? Victoria laughed. You were great back there, I said. You put an end to that altercation without a hitch. I'm impressed. Thanks. Victoria smiled while shaking her head. What fools these mortals be. Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. Do you think the Tempest was... Victoria was interrupted by a loud commotion coming from Economy Plus again. <sighs> Seriously? We made our way over to Economy Plus, where we encountered a portly man screaming at a flight attendant. Apparently, the man wanted a soda instead of a water bottle. The flight attendant, Edward Robinson, apologized. However, his apology wasn't good enough. The irate passenger stood up and shoved Edward. Judging from his clenched fists, it was apparent that Edward was doing his best to remain in control. Excuse me, sir, Victoria snarled. Please sit back down and refrain from any more outbursts. Shut up, bitch! Bring me my soda! The man shoved Victoria, nearly causing her to fall. Edward, having had enough, rushed up to the man only to have his stomach punched in. He fell to his knees and coughed. Hey, dollface, the hell you waiting for? My soda, make a snappy. Victoria got in front of the man's face. Sit down, asshole. The man sneered. What? Sit down, asshole asshole victoria said i hope you know you're under arrest the instant we land aggravated assault is a serious crime the portly man laughed he then grabbed victoria and pulled her close to him you're the rough type ain't you victoria took her heel and dug it into the portly man's foot he screamed and pushed victoria to the ground i ran to victoria's side and helped her stand then i got in front of her and confronted the portly man I asked him to take his seat. He ignored me and took a couple swings. I deflected his punches. Finally, when I saw he wasn't going to listen to reason, I threw a right cross that landed hard on the left side of his face. This made him woozy for a second before he hit the ground like a brick, unconscious. A few minutes later, after the portly man, 
still unconscious, was strapped into his seat. The first officer, Maria Duvall, appeared. Victoria and Edward explained what had happened. Thank you, Mr. Goff, Maria said. We appreciate your help. Now, please, I ask that you return to your seat as well. The 12-year-old boy from before ran down the aisle and up to Maria. He said his name was Paul and asked her if she was the pilot and if he could see the cockpit. When Maria said she was the first officer, the boy smiled and asked if he could shake her hand. She said yes and told him that he could see the cockpit when he landed. Once Victoria made sure Edward had caught his breath, she rejoined me in first class. She thanked me for helping her out with the poorly man. I told her thanks wasn't necessary. In truth, she could have easily taken that guy on without a problem. I could see it in her eyes. She used incredible restraint, even made herself fall in order to give the portly man a false sense of confidence. But had she taken down the guy and hurt him, who knows what the airline would have done to her. Where'd you learn to punch someone like that? Victoria said. I told her I had learned that from karate classes I'd taken years ago. She didn't buy it. There was no way that a travel writer who wrote for a living and looked like he was 5'11 and probably weighed around 160 pounds was capable of knocking out a 6'2", 200-plus-pound man in one punch, she told me. Victoria wasn't wrong, dear listener. I didn't learn to fight from karate classes. I learned my martial arts during my Lyos agent training years ago. The training consisted of mastering Brazilian jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai. Mastering these two martial arts was, and still is, a requirement of all Lyos agents. Failing to master these arts will result in the termination of training and a visit from the MAU, Memory Altering Unit. Those were some brutal years. My mind and body experienced extreme punishment the likes I hope never to encounter again. However, despite the savage nature of that training, it did prepare me for life as a field agent. Of course, as always, my training is only used when it is deemed a last resort. The punch I gave the portly man was far from a death blow. It was a light hit, enough to knock him out without breaking his orbital bone or causing death. You're not going to tell me, are you? Victoria said, smiling. A man of mystery. Didn't know any of you still existed. I laughed. <laughs> I'm no mystery. I am what you see. No, there's more to you than meets the eye. I could say the same about you. Victoria smiled. She and I began to talk about our lives and goals and dreams. At least, this is what I'd like to say happened. Unfortunately, that conversation was not written in the stars that night. No, something darker was planned for us. Cursing and shouting erupted from Economy Plus again. Then, the passengers sitting in first class began arguing with the flight attendant about the quality of the bourbon and champagne being served on the plane. Unlike Edward, who held his tongue, this flight attendant, Monica, shouted back at the passenger. Other passengers jumped in and ganged up on Monica. Victoria had no time to get involved here because the passengers over an economy were beating each other up. The scene was pure chaos. Passengers in economy were throwing their phones at each other like weapons. Others were filming the commotion before throwing their phones into the mix. When the phones all hit the ground, the passengers then used their fists and words to attack each other. That wasn't enough. The overhead bins were opened and carry-ons were transformed into bludgeoning instruments. Babies were crying. Kids were running up and down the aisles, biting anyone close to them. 
Even the flight attendants, Edward included, were part of the pandemonium. Not one passenger seemed to be free of a bloodied face. Christ, Victoria said. What the hell is going on here? She was about to rush into the violent row, but I stopped her before she took one step into that madness. I turned around and saw the first-class passengers using pens and other mundane objects as melee weapons. Unruly passengers weren't uncommon, especially in today's world. But having an entire plane full of unruly passengers didn't happen. This was something else. I pulled out two dream dusters, coaster-sized containers filled with potent sleeping dust, and threw one into economy and another into first class. Then I grabbed Victoria and dragged her into the nearby bathroom with me. We waited the required two minutes before stepping back outside. All was silent minus the hum of the plane engines. How'd you do all this? Victoria said, wide-eyed. You're not a travel writer, are you? I shook my head. Victoria and I went up and down the aisles, placing those passengers who had fallen asleep on the ground back into their seats. Once this painstaking process was finished, Victoria cornered me. You better start talking, she said. Who are you? It's better that you don't know. Of course, she grimaced. At least tell me your real name. You can call me Agent Kai. But that's not your real name, is it? It's the closest thing. After a moment, she said, I don't know about that, but this isn't over. She stared into my eyes. Now, can you tell me what the hell's going on? I explained to Victoria that I couldn't be certain yet, but that whatever was going on, one thing was clear. The passenger outbursts were just the beginning. We sauntered toward the cockpit to inform Captain Juan Buendia about the unruly passengers when Victoria and I were thrust backward. Luggage spilled out and flew about the cabin. A Tumi suitcase hit me on the shoulder as I was thrown against the wall hard. Victoria suffered a similar fate. She was pinned against the wall across from me. The passengers, who had been securely fastened to their seats, moved their arms and heads in unison with the plane. It took a moment to realize the plane had entered a steep nosedive. The engines screamed in the night air as the A380 reached mock speed. I tried to move, but the force was too great. All I could do was brace myself for the impact that was to come. But within several minutes, which felt more like hours, the plane began to level off. Soon, we were gaining altitude and holding steady. I made my way over to Victoria. She was bleeding from her knees and sustained a small cut on her cheek. I ripped off a piece of my shirt and used it to dab her cut to help stop the bleeding. As for me, I sustained a dislocated shoulder courtesy of that flying suitcase and several scratches on my face. I popped my shoulder back in place. Victoria dusted herself off. Together, we made our way to the cockpit. Inside, Captain Juan Buendia was in control of the plane. His first officer, Maria Duval, was knocked out in her seat. What's going on in here, Captain? Victoria said. I wish I knew, Vic, Juan said. One minute I'm checking our fuel, the next minute Maria disengages the autopilot and puts us in a nosedive. He paused. I had to stop her from crashing the plane. She wouldn't listen to me, so I, well, I decked her. Victoria shot me a blank look. Did she say or do anything before disengaging the autopilot? I said. Juan turned around for a moment. Who's this guy? He's one of the passengers who helped me back there. Great. This is turning out to be one hell of a flight, Juan said. No, she didn't say any... Wait, hold on. 
she mumbled something. He paused and thought for a moment. I think it was something like, damn this airline, but I can't be sure. Increased workload, Victoria said under her breath. Victoria mentioned how shortly before takeoff, she was catching up with Maria. They hadn't flown together in weeks, and Maria mentioned how she'd been working around the clock. Maria was married and had a one-year-old who she barely saw. When she asked the airline for time off, they refused her request, saying they needed all their pilots on deck. That's true, Juan said. Lately, I think I've been spending more time in the air than I have on land. He clicked several buttons on the instrument panels. How are the other passengers doing? They okay? Victoria informed Juan about what had happened, minus the detail about the dream dusters. Really? Jesus Christ, he said. Do you think we should divert to an alternate airport? No, Vic, I think we're good, Juan said. We should stick to our schedule and continue toward Oslo. Inform me if another passenger outburst occurs. Passengers unable to control their emotions. Flight attendants attacking their passengers. An angry pilot wanting to destroy airline property. Things were beginning to make sense. I wanted to inform Victoria and Juan about the possible danger we were facing. But all I had at that moment was a hunch that a vicious killer was on board and no proof. I had to make sure my hunch was right before causing any unwanted stress on these two. After removing Maria from the cockpit and strapping her down to a chair in first class, Victoria and I walked over to the cabin crew station. Here, Victoria used the airline-issued laptop to pull up the passenger manifest. I had told her that we needed to check to make sure all passengers were present and accounted for. When Victoria asked me why we were doing this, I told her I just wanted to confirm that everyone, including ourselves, were safe. It took several trips up and down the aisles of the cabin to count the sleeping passengers and check them off the manifest list. But we managed to cross off every name on that list. All 191 souls, including the cabin crew, were on board and accounted for. I felt a slight tinge of relief, but this was short-lived. Victoria stared at the passenger manifest with a perplexed expression. Without saying a word, she walked up and down the aisles of the cabin new. Then, she counted the names on the list twice. Something's not right, she said. We're missing a passenger. Are you sure? She nodded. Paul's missing. The little boy from earlier, the one asking to see the cockpit. His name isn't on the manifest, and he's not here in the cabin. We spent several minutes checking all the bathrooms and small spaces throughout the cabin with no luck. Paul was nowhere to be found. This was the last piece of information I needed to confirm my hypothesis. United Flight 204 had fallen victim to a grimad. A what? Victoria said. A grimad, dear listener, is an ancient and rare creature that spawns every few centuries. It is a distant relative of the more familiar gremlin, but unlike their smaller counterpart, the grimad is more devious in its mischief. Highly intelligent and deceptive, this creature is capable of shifting its true form into that of a person. The Grimad always uses the form of a child, usually one between the ages of 8 to 12, in order to gain access to an airliner, their preferred hunting ground. While a gremlin may like to tinker around the mechanical aspects of an aircraft, eventually causing the plane to crash, the Grimad prefers to tinker with the passengers and cabin crew. You see, the Grimad secretes a toxin through its skin and uses touch to infect its victims. If the Grimad is unable to touch its victim, 
and can unleash the toxin into the air by simply exhaling. The Grimad's toxin is one that inhibits a person's logic and reason. Basically, if a person takes in the Grimad's toxin, that person will lose their self-control and give in to their primitive desires. And a person's primitive desires tend to be violent. Whether that desire is fueled by lust or anger, it's a sure bet that person will begin to cause chaos on board the flight. And to make matters worse, once a person is infected with the Grimad's toxin, they can spread it to others in the same manner. Once the passengers and cabin crew are infected, the Grimad simply sits back and watches as the people on the plane kill each other. Eventually, the plane will fall from the sky and crash into the sea or land. The Grimad is designed to survive any plane crash. And once the plane and passengers have been obliterated, the Grimad goes to work, feasting on the flesh of the dead until it has its fill. However, not everyone is vulnerable to the Grimad's toxin. If a person is of strong will and mind, they can resist the toxin's effects. I told Victoria this information. She looked at me, furrow-browed. You know, if I hadn't seen you put an entire plane of passengers to sleep with those devices, I'd call you a liar. She glanced at the manifest again. So where do you think this kid, I mean, Grimad, is now? That was a good question. From my knowledge of the Grimad, once its original intention is having the passengers and cabin crew kill each other and bring the plane down, were thrown off, it would move on to its next line of attack, bringing the plane down itself. I told Victoria the Grimad may have made its way down into the cargo compartments where it would have access to the plane's fuel and wiring. If the Grimad planned on bringing down the plane, this would be the way it would do it. Of course, the Grimad, while capable of puncturing a hole through the plane's metallic skin with its claws, wouldn't dare. It would run the risk of being sucked out and thrown into the open sky, losing its sealed meal. No, the Grimad needed the plane to fall one piece in order for it to feast. Victoria said, Wait, so what exactly? The humming of the engines changed. Instead of the usual loud hum, there was now a lower hum to them. Victoria ran over to the window seat and peered out the window. Damn it, she said. I can't see anything. It's too dark out there. But that was definitely an engine shutting down. Come on, we have to make sure. We rushed over to the cockpit. There was an alarm blaring. Damn it, we lost engine four, Juan said. I can't tell if the computer's telling me the truth, but it looks like we're losing fuel at an alarming rate. This can't be right. We have more than enough to make it to Oslo. It's just the one engine, Victoria said. So far, it's just the one engine. Another alarm began blaring. You've got to be kidding me, Juan said. We just lost engine two. He turned off the alarm and pressed several buttons. We won't be able to maintain our altitude with two engines. We'll have to descend to 200. Victoria shot me a worried look. This bird can fly on two, right? Juan said. Yeah, we should be able to stay in the air with two so long as we maintain a lower altitude. He paused. But if we lose another engine, then we'll be entering dire straits. The Grimad was busy at work. If I didn't find it now and stopped it from disrupting the remaining engines, Victoria, Juan, and I would be going for a fatal swim in the middle of the Atlantic. I started for the cockpit when Victoria stopped me. Where are you going? To check on the engines, I said. See if I can get a visual. To check the engines, huh? She retorted. By yourself? That's probably going to be dangerous. I'm coming with you. Actually, I can use you here, Vic, Juan said. 
I'm gonna need help with the engine restart checklist. Maybe we can get these engines working again. I agreed with Juan. Before I left the cockpit, Victoria pulled me to the side and said, Promise me, whatever happens, you'll come back here. I promised her. To be safe, I grabbed a small whiteboard from the first class cabin crew station and wrote down a riddle. I posted the whiteboard with this riddle on the cockpit door. I then made my way over to the cargo hatch that was by seat 39. It was locked, therefore I had to pick it open. The small ladder led me down into a pitch black area filled with luggage. This place was cramped. I had to hunch over to move around. Aside from the tightness of this lower deck, the stinging smell of jet fuel was strong. My eyes and mouth stung from the fumes. Whatever the Grimad was doing here, it was tampering with the plane's fuel. Biting off the stinging sensation, I used my phone's flashlight to navigate this fuel-soaked underworld. I also set up Spotify and had it ready to go. Judging from the small hole punctures throughout the sides of the plane, the lethal creature had begun to mess with the plane's fuel tanks, but for whatever reason it gave up. I wasn't sure why at first, but when I glanced at the damage the creature had done it became obvious. While the stench of the jet fuel hovered throughout the cargo compartment, there wasn't a trace of fuel. It used razor-thin proboscis that cut through anything like diamond must have used it to suck the fuel until it had its fill. I suppose the A380 had more fuel than the Grimad could take in. When I finally came across the creature, it was using its claws on the small door that led into avionics. If it managed to get in, it would be able to destroy the plane's computer systems, dooming Flight 204. The Grimad stopped clawing at the door and turned around. It was using its child form. Can you help me, mister? The creature said, I'm lost. Viram Sude Velari Tum. The Grimad growled with ferocity. Then it revealed its true self. The child's bones cracked and ripped through the skin. The Grimad used its claws to tear off the remaining flesh from its face and body and devoured it. It continued to do this until all that remained was a four-foot skeletal creature with large razor-sharp claws on its hands and feet and a long muscular tail. Its face was a monstrous thing that resembled an elongated hyena's skull with large darkened eyes and diamond-piercing teeth. Stop speaking what it doesn't talk. The Grimet said in its low, barely audible voice. Latin, dear listener, is despised tongue by the Grimet. While I can understand it, it prefers to speak any language but Latin. The hypothesis behind this is that Latin reminds the Grimad of its ancestors, which were primitive beings forced to hide in the shadows of mankind, either in forests or caves long before it took to the skies. The Grimad spoke. Why do you value life? All humans deceive. All humans kill. Why is it fine for you to kill? Or wrong for Grimad to kill? You're taking lives, innocent lives, on purpose, I said, and feasting on the flesh of the dead. Not much difference between Grimad and human except one. It started to move its tail. Humans destroy all. Grimad destroys all what Grimad needs. 
and you need an entire plane of people. The Grimhead snarled and whipped its tail in my direction, striking me on my side and slamming me against the plane. I lost my breath for a few seconds. Then, the Grimhead hovered over me, its diamond teeth reflecting the light from my phone's flashlight. The creature studied me for a moment, probably wondering how I knew about its existence. It was during this time that I pressed play on my phone and the screeching guitar outro to Pantera's Cemetery Gates began playing. The Grimhead roared something fierce, nearly popping my eardrums. It then used its scalpel-like claws to tear through the ceiling of the cargo compartment and into the cabin. The sound of a screeching guitar, dear listener, is devastating to a Grimhead. It won't kill them, but it will cause them unbearable discomfort. If you should ever come face to face with such a creature, a simple guitar screech should keep the beast away long enough for you to escape its clutches. But killing it, well, that's another matter entirely. I got to my feet and chased after the creature, gritting my teeth in pain. The Grimhead's tail whip had fractured a couple of my ribs. I soldiered on and re-entered the cabin. When I came across the hole the Grimhead had made when escaping the cargo compartment, it looked like a small explosive had gone off. To my dismay, several of the passengers seated here, including one of the flight attendants, Monica, were slaughtered by the Grimad. I followed the creature's bloody footprints all the way to the cockpit door. It was standing still, reading the riddle I had written on the whiteboard. If there was one thing a Grimad enjoyed more than playing with its prey and eating it, it was solving riddles. The riddle here was, We are all very little creatures. All of us have different features. One of us in glass is set. One of us you'll find in a jet. Another you may see in tin. And a fourth is boxed within. If the fifth you should pursue, it can never fly from you. What are we? Can you solve it? I said. The Grimad growled. Its guess was mirror. I shook my head. Try again. The Grimad then said that it was a fairy. Wrong, I said. The answer is vowels. Vowels? Lies. Look at it again and read it carefully. The Grimad did. It noticed the pattern immediately. It pointed out the A in glass, the E in jet, the I in tin, the O in boxed, and the U in U. That's one point for me, I said. Your turn. The Grimad grinned. It then proposed the following riddle. What goes on four feet in the morning, two feet at noon, and three feet in the evening? I said, a person. The creature sneered. It then told me it was my turn. I took a few steps backward. The Grimad followed. The riddle I gave was... Voiceless it cries, wingless flutters, toothless bites, mouthless mutters. The Grimad thought for a moment, then it said, wind. It was right. I said, your point, your turn. I took a few more steps backwards. The creature followed once again. The next riddle the Grimad posited was a difficult one. The cock crew, the sky was blue. The bells in heaven were striking eleven. Tis time for this poor soul to go to heaven. 
I'll admit, dear listener, I was stomped. I did not know the answer to this riddle. The best I could come up with was the morning. The Grimad laughed and said that I was wrong and that it had a point. The Grimad said the answer was the fox burying his grandmother under a holly bush. Apparently, this was a riddle about riddles. Whether the answer to that riddle was what the Grimad said, it didn't matter. The creature and I were now tied, and it was my turn. Again, I took several steps backwards, and again the Grimad followed. We were now in the center of the plane, devoid of any passengers. I thought for a moment about the right riddle. Finally, I said, There is a house. One enters it blind and comes out seeing. What is it? The Grimad's guess was church. Wrong, I said. The answer is a school. And with that, I had beaten the Grimad, and the creature knew it. The Grimad took one of its scalpel's sharp claws and slit its own throat. Blood gushed everywhere. I threw myself into the adjacent aisle, avoiding the toxic liquid. When I stood up and peered over at the creature, I noticed it had reverted back to its human child form. Everything surrounding its corpse had melted. Smoke slithered up into the air for several minutes before evaporating. You see, dear listener, the Grimad is virtually indestructible. No mortal weapon can harm it. Remember, it is designed to withstand the most violent of plane crashes. However, if a Grimad is beaten in a game of riddles, the creature, in its shame, will commit suicide. But it will leave the winner one last surprise. Acid blood. If the winner isn't careful, they too can be killed. I took a moment to catch my breath and take in the pain of my shoulder and ribs. Unfortunately, time was not a luxury I had going for me. Shortly after the Grimma had expired, the remaining plane engines flamed out. I ran back to the cockpit. You're back, Victoria said, her eyes examining me. What happened to you? Long story. I said. Are the engines out? Yeah, all four flamed out, Juan said. According to the computer here, we're out of fuel. The lights gave out. Only basic functions remained thanks to the ram air turbine, otherwise known as the RAT, a small propeller that drops open underneath the plane if the engines should ever fail. The RAT provides the plane with basic flight controls, but nothing else. Essentially, the pilot is doing all the flying in this situation. Flight 204 had gone from a commercial jetliner to an oversized glider. Oh, damn, Juan said. Looks like we're going to have to prepare for a ditching. A ditching, Victoria said. Christ, can you land this thing on water? Juan shrugged. I don't know. What's our coordinates, I said. Juan read the last coordinate he remembered from a few minutes ago. I told Juan there was an island called Cavassier that was used by the Air Force nearby. I gave him the radio channel. Within a few minutes, Juan had established communication with the military base, called in a mayday, and received clearance to land. It took us several minutes to locate Cavassier in the pitch dark. Good thing we did, because with each passing second, the plane was losing altitude. Luckily, the island was illuminated by the blinking lights of the runway. Juan performed a 360-degree turn, followed by a series of S-turns to dissipate excess altitude. Once we had the runway in view, it was all on Juan. 
Since the plane had no engines, Juan was only going to get one shot at landing. If he miscalculated anything, we'd be shot off the 500-foot cliff at the end of the runway and slammed into the ocean. As Juan went in for the final approach, Victoria called out airspeed and altitude. Captain Juan Buendia, a captain with over 20,000 flight hours experience, put in work that night. All his training, all his experience came into play in those crucial moments. Vic, release the landing gear, Juan said. Without power, gravity had to pull down and lock the landing gear. 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. The plane landed hard and bounced off the runway twice before Juan could stick the landing. We were racing on that runway. All Juan had were the plane's brakes. Without the engines, we had no reverse thrusters. The force of the plane's speed and bulk popped most of the tires, but in the end, the plane came to a full stop 100 yards short of the cliff face. United Flight 204 was evacuated immediately upon landing. Passengers who had been asleep during the flight were woken up by military personnel. They all complained of feeling a severe headache and no memory of the plane ever being in danger. Traces of an unknown toxin was detected throughout the plane, which could have contributed to the passenger's headache and slight memory loss. The cabin crew and passengers of Flight 204 waited for several hours for another passenger jet to arrive and complete the last leg to Oslo. During this time, cabin crew and passengers were interviewed by military personnel about the details concerning the two large holes found in the plane in the emergency landing. No one could provide any information involving this situation. Neither passengers nor cabin crew recalled anything out of the ordinary. Besides this agent, the only other person involved in this report that contained knowledge of what really happened on board Flight 204, Head Flight Attendant Victoria Lacatos told her interviewers she knew nothing besides the engines flaming out and helping Captain Buendia land the plane. Captain Juan Buendia did mention that First Officer Maria Duval tried to bring the plane down at one point. However, it was concluded that Ms. Duval was disorientated and fainted from breathing in toxic fumes and caused the plane to nosedive when she passed out. The NTSB ruled the cause of Flight 204's emergency landing as the result of a fuel leak explosion. Of course, this ruling was conducted by Lyos intelligencers within the NTSB. Captain Juan Buendia was awarded a medal for his Herculean efforts in landing the plane in a difficult situation. Out of the 191 souls on board Flight 204, 181 survived. When this agent arrived at Gardermoen Airport in Oslo, Victoria Lakatos approached this agent and mentioned that she couldn't explain what happened on that plane, but knew that whatever this agent did, it saved the plane and the majority of those souls on board, including herself. Protocol dictates that a Lyos agent should dispatch the memory altering unit to erase Ms. Lakatos' mind. However, this agent decided this was not necessary. Ms. Lakatos proved herself to be a valuable asset during this unannounced assignment. She may be valuable again in the future. It is this agent's belief that Ms. Lakatos will not say anything to anyone about the events that took place on board Flight 204. To ensure that this remains so, this agent has exchanged numbers with Ms. Lakatos and assigned a crow watch, that is, 
Lyles trained crows to keep a watchful eye on her. What piece of work is a man? How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form, in moving, how express and admirable in action, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. Hamlet speaks these lines in Act Two of Shakespeare's famous tragedy. He mentions how impressive mankind can be in reason and expression, how the world is filled with such beauty, yet at the same time, how pointless it can all be. For Hamlet, mankind is nothing more than dust that fades, an impressive act, but nothing more. Humanity is a piece of work. People go about their lives doing their best to maintain a brave face and a strong mind, but this is only an illusion. Reason is meant to keep humanity grounded. However, this agent wonders how long this can last. While reason, an enlightened mind, may dictate how society should work, it cannot prevent the chaos, a primitive mind, from ultimately gaining control of all. It is this agent's belief that all participants of this world are subject to the primitive mind. There's no escaping it. This is something the Grimed knows well. The unruly passengers, the aggressive flight attendants, and the suicidal first officer, Maria Duvall, were all people of reason. Each one had their own problems to deal with, and each one hid those problems far behind their public facade. This is what's so impressive about the reason of humanity, how with all the issues an individual is hit with, that individual can still function as a contributing person to society. Passengers maintain their cool despite their lives' inner turmoil. Flight attendants display a smile despite being insulted and yelled at. And a first officer does their job of flying a plane from point A to point B despite being overworked. But lurking deep in their minds is their primitive self. Take away all reason that holds the individual accountable in the social contract of society, and the individual rears the primitive face. The face of chaos. The Grimat chooses humans as its prey, not because it prefers the taste of human flesh over other animals, but because it knows that humanity is the easiest to manipulate. While there are many animals in the world to demonstrate a violent and brutal nature, only mankind relishes it. And due to this fact, the Grimat does not have to do much to hunt. Just remove that fragile barrier that is reason, humans become nothing more than violent monsters willing to kill each other over nothing. The Grimad's form of attack, removing reason from an individual's mind via a toxin, posits a serious question. Is humanity's true nature violent and pointless? And if so, what does this say about a supposed monster like the Grimad? Can the Grimad and the like be called a monster if it was deemed so by a monster? Humanity is remarkable in reason and action, but this agent can't help but wonder if humanity is nothing more than the quintessence of dust. <laughs>